Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Many of us know what it feels like to fall in love. The attraction, the chemistry, the excitement. But what's it like to fall in love with an ashtray? I like that uh, it's uh, smelly, very dirty. I like uh, touch, hug uh, with ashtray. And what's it like to wholeheartedly love a chandelier? I mean, she looks amazing, you know, all the little curls and that's well. The angles, and I've never seen another chandelier that looks like her. Hear what love is like for people who identify as objectum sexual, plus a sexologist on what the rest of us get wrong about them. These are people who have legitimate relationships and should be respected as any sexual or gender minority should be respected. I'm Kion Wolf. That's coming up next on Audacious, right after the news. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, I'm Kion Wolf, and on Audacious, we love talking about love. There was that one episode full of advice from people who've been married for over 50 years. There was another episode about people who find real love and fulfillment with, well, calling them sex dolls is a bit limiting, with realistic-looking, life-sized, human-resembling, synthetic companions. And today we're going to talk about and with people who are objectum sexuals. Here's my first guest defining it for you. I basically define it in the same way that objectum sexuals do, and that is as a sexual orientation. It's not a fetish. I mean, there are people who fetishize objects, but it's not a fetish because these are full-blown, complex, multi-emotional relationships that run the gamut, you know, between uh, same sex or different sex preferences, if they detect gender in an object. Some people are polyamorous and have a number of objects. Some people are monogamous with their objects. It can be very romantic. It can be affectionate. Uh, it can be definitely erotic. It's a full spectrum. That's Amy Marsh. Amy is a sexologist with a private practice as a sexuality counselor, and Amy identifies as a non-binary femme and goes by the pronouns Z and Zir. Now, before we get going, a few things to keep in mind. The stuff we're going to talk about isn't explicitly sexual, but, you know, this one's maybe not for every age group. And in this first segment, you're going to hear Amy mention the OS group, which is the Objectum Sexuality International Group, a support network for objectum sexuals that also provides education and insights to the wider world. And you'll hear the word animist, which is defined as the belief that objects, places, and creatures all possess a distinct spiritual essence. Later in the show, you'll hear from people who are in relationships with an ashtray and a chandelier. But first, I wanted Amy to help us understand more about objectum sexuality, and specifically a survey that Z shared with the OS International Group to get a broader understanding of how they see themselves. I asked Amy what Z learned from Z's survey. I think the big thing that struck me immediately was how natural these relationships are for the people who are engaged in them. And I was originally drawn to it because I had been exploring 
sexual uh, relationships for people on the autism spectrum. And I had noticed in the OS website that some of the people had been diagnosed or some people felt that they had significant traits of autism. So that initially drew me into it. And then just seeing, I would say it was not a very scientific survey. It was originally designed for the membership of OS International and the English speaking people who could respond to it. So it was quick, it was well thought out, but it was not something that I could publish other than as a general article, you know, in a journal. But the qualitative responses where people are actually talking about their experiences and, and uh, how they relate to their objects. This was stunning because, again, it ran the gamut. You said you were drawn in because of this, um, the people saying that they were on the autism spectrum. Did you discover any more about that as you heard these stories? Yeah, some people, there, there became a little further down the line, some people saying, yeah, you know, I really... Uh, identify as being autistic and other people saying, I don't believe that autism is part of my picture and I identify more as an animist. And I think it's really important to keep those two different things in mind when we talk about objectum sexuality. But the interesting thing is in 2019, I believe it's Judith Simner and a couple of other people, researchers out of England, did a study wondering if objectum sexuality was linked to autism and also to something which I'd proposed, which was object personification synesthesia. And yay, they found links. So that was cool. Whoa. There's a lot in there. Um, <laughs> there is, yeah. <laughs> and it's, I imagine it's something that I guess like any human, any human behavior, especially when you tie in sexuality and romance and desires and the way our brains work, like you'll never really be done figuring it out, what it means, how it happens. That's the fun part of this field, definitely. Just yesterday, though, I found a model of sexual orientation that dates from the 90s, but it was just published in a book by William R. Staten, Sinless Sex, A Challenge to Religions. And this is such a beautiful model of sexual orientations because he adds objects, he adds deities, and his contention is the same as mine is basically human beings can eroticize pretty much anything. And they do. It was a brilliant model. And I just love it. And dating from the nineties, how perfect, but I hadn't heard of it before. Uh, yeah. I mean, you make me think about how quickly it seems like we're evolving at least in the bubble, you know, that is where I am in the United States in this era we're in, but as a 41-year-old on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum, I've, I've seen a lot of growth in my community when it comes to acceptance of folks who are into different things. But at the same time, someone might be driving to work and hear the promo for this episode and go, what? So that being said, what are the ways that people misunderstand objectum sexuals? And what do you wish they would know? What should people take away from this episode? the misconceptions are that the people are crazy, that they have some kind of mental illness that makes them delusional, uh, that they can't get a human date, that they've been traumatized. And that's not the case, really. I mean, yeah, there are some people who are dealing with depression or PTSD or something else, but at least in the small sample that were in the survey, and then people I've talked to since, 
they're not reporting those kinds of diagnoses. And not everybody has been traumatized. This is just simply a wiring, really, more than anything else. And so the sensational aspect of it lends to a lot of troll behavior. And I think that's unfortunate. So remembering that these are people who have legitimate relationships and should be respected as any sexual or gender minority should be respected. These are folks who are going to experience a number of things in their relationships. Sometimes they may need support from counselors or therapists. Sometimes that will be related to their relationship and sometimes not. But the last thing you want is to have to educate your therapist or your counselor in order to get them to even see that you're there to talk about your dentistry or or something else and not always hyper-focus on, oh my God, this person's in a relationship that's so weird to me and I don't understand it. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I think about the the evolution of of therapy with people on the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. I remember when I was young, I saw a therapist and my first meeting with her and last was, uh, she said, okay, so you're a lesbian. And I said, yeah. And she said, so how long have you wanted to be a boy? Oh. And I, that was, that was it for <laughs> never as the, these are two different, this is not, and I was a teenager, so I couldn't necessarily be as confident in my informing as I would as an adult. But when you think about how fast things are evolving in terms of people being like, Hey, you do you, you know, I can Google it and learn more about it. So you don't have to do that heavy lifting. When you look at the future of understanding objectum sexuals, what what do you think would be different then and a better world for them than there is now? I'd say most of the trauma that objectum sexuals experience are from people treating them poorly because of their relationship or treating the objects poorly. I mean, I know of a couple instances where people have been threatened and controlled by harm being done to or threatened to be done to, to the beloved object. I mean, you can imagine how terrifying that is. So if I imagine a better world, it's exactly what you said a little while ago. It's like, you do you, I'll learn about it. It's like your object beloved is not my deity God spouse, but your, your objective sexual lover is okay. I just want to see more acceptance. Speaking of deities, uh, you your most recent focus is on spiritual sex. Spiritual? How how do you say spirit? I'm using two terms: spiritu intimacy and spectrosexuality. Now, there's a category in the sexological literature of spectrophilia, which is you know a a fetishized longing for sex with a ghost. Basically, is that definition? But there are a number of people who have experienced. Uh, deeply erotic encounters with non-corporeal beings. And some remain in long-term relationships with one or more non-corporeal being. It's throughout history, culture, religious and spiritual traditions, you name it. It's like the big thing we're not talking about yet, but it's utterly fascinating. And it brings me to objectum sexuality because if you look at the objects that people are engaged with, Are they actually tapping into an inherent spirit of the chair or the ashtray or the glass or whatever it is they're relating to? Or have they done a kind of theurgistic 
process of imbuing or inviting a spirit in to that object without knowing it. It's like the velveteen rabbit story that they have for kids. When you love, when you get loved, you become real. Is that what's happening? We don't know, but there is definitely a sense of two-way communication for most of the people that I've talked with, not entirely. And sometimes the communication is not verbal. It's maybe sensing heat or some other sort of synergistic, not, not synergistic, I'm sorry, synesthesia process going on in the communication. That is so freaking fascinating. It is super fascinating. When someone feels drawn to objects and, you know, they can Google for themselves and, you know, when we're in this era where they can look for help. But if somebody is listening to this and they think, this is me, oh my God, I thought I was the only one. <laughs> or um, this is me and I know I'm not the only one, but I don't like it. I wish I wasn't like this because it's hard. What can they do? Mm. So that that initial feeling of, I wish I wasn't like that, this is hard. That's a difficult place to be in. But we know that trying to change your orientation or orientations doesn't really work. And I think the best support and antidote to that is to find others like you and to be in community and talk and find that it is normalized uh, among a group of people. So then you begin to understand that it's not just you. And maybe some of that loneliness will go away. But it may not make your life any easier because you're still having to deal with other people's prejudices. Yeah, it's funny. As you're talking, I'm reflecting on the fact that I was like, God, that's fascinating. And, and, and it is. And there's so many doors to kind of walk through. And at the same time, like, I want to be fascinating for all of me, not one part of me. And so... I wonder if you have an attraction to objects, if, if it's like, I'm more than this too, right? Right. Yeah. Why should they always be seen as that one aspect of themselves that, yes, yeah, getting you on radio and television and podcasts and stuff, but you're into other stuff, you know, you have a fuller life. A lot of people are engaged in, in other kinds of relationships with human beings and, uh, not just people in there. Well, I should say with human beings outside the, the OS community and they're doing stuff. They're living life just as anybody else is. But that hyper-focus, it's necessary to kind of get the word out and let people know. And on the other hand, it, it can be a little detrimental or intrusive, I think, for some people. Yeah, limiting. Yeah. What does this work do for you? I mean, you, you this, is, <laughs> this is work I imagine that, you know, like we talked about, you're, you're never going to understand all of this. And it is a very fertile soil that you are digging in. What mm. does this work do for you personally? I would say I have an intellectual as well as an emotional attachment to doing this work. And I like to help people, obviously like to be useful in that way. We don't get much encouragement in this culture to explore our own inner erotic landscape. And the people who do get to do that or who have decided to embark on that, they go to some pretty interesting places and they learn about themselves deeply and they learn about other lovers, whether corporeal, object, or human, they'll also learn. 
Well, did I miss anything in this grand landscape of, of questioning? But for this particular show, did I miss anything? I don't think so, except I guess I'd like to just leave it with the idea that clinicians of all kinds need to educate themselves, not just about objective sexuality, but other forms of human sexual behavior that seems unusual to them. The biggest mistake you can do is try to function from what you you think you yourself is quote unquote normal or average, and you just cannot do that. So get educated and do not shame anybody who comes into your office and tells you that, you know, their significant other is a crossbow or a lantern or whatever. Amy Marsh, thank you for talking with me. Yeah, you're welcome. You can find links to Amy's website and Objectum Sexuality International at our website, ctpublic.org slash audacious. When we get back, what's it like to fall in love with a Statue of Liberty? When I did and got on the boat and went over, oh, oh, that was such a special moment. And what's the appeal of an ashtray? It's uh, kinky for other people, but uh, I love it. And it's my personal life. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Stay with me. Love is an that spills in your this is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today we're getting a better understanding of what it's like to fall in love and or lust with objects. In a little bit, you'll meet a woman who changed her last name to Liberty when she fell in love with the Statue of Liberty and who is now smitten with a very seductive chandelier. But right now you get to meet Yuri Torochko. He's an LGBTQIA activist, bodybuilder, and artist living in Nur Sultan, Kazakhstan. He's also an objectum sexual, whose latest love is an ashtray. But the ashtray wasn't the first object to catch his eye. You'll hear more about the other objects of his affection, and you should know that this interview does get slightly not safe for work or kids, but the thing about him that made headlines in the last couple of years was his marriage to his sex dolls, their realistic-looking, life-sized, human-resembling synthetic companions, Luna and Lola. I asked him to tell me about them. Uh, they are re- really different, and uh, uh, it's why I... Uh, love them. Lola is uh, absolutely my uh, fantasy. I love that uh, she has a head of woman and uh, body of chicken. It's unusual, it's uh, surrealistic, but I like surrealistic things uh, with my childhood. It's my nature. Uh, But uh, Luna is very tender, very delicate and uh, very sexy for me. Luna, uh, Luna is uh, more sexy for me, but Lola is more for uh, soul comfort for me. And uh, also, I love that uh, Lola is very soft, and sometimes uh, I love to lay my head uh, on her stomach uh, like a pillow. What's the difference to you between a relationship with an object and a relationship with a human? Uh, it's really not the same. Uh, 
And when uh, I uh, say that I love uh, my Lola Lunas or another object, it's not the same when I love the human, the person. What? It's really different. But uh, you can uh, uh, feel love uh, her car, violent uh, musical instrument, and uh, it's similar. It's similar feeling. But I love the story the story with these objects and dolls, not only uh, sexual experience. And sex is different too, uh, because uh, some people ask me uh, what's the best, uh, sex with a real uh, woman uh, or guy or with doll. It's different. It's, it's different. And it's different between human beings anyway, right? You know, like no two people are alike. So why wouldn't, why wouldn't people be different than objects? Yes, yes. I'd love to hear about the ashtray. That was the first thing that brought us to you was your experience with this ashtray. Tell me the story. The first time you laid eyes on this ashtray, what happened? I performed at the gay club uh, weekend, on the weekend. And uh, the ashtray is in the smoking room there. And uh, I, uh, about two or three times uh, a week, uh, I see it. And uh, I, I like that... It's uh, very smelly, very dirty. I like uh, touch, uh, hug uh, with ashtray. And I like that uh, it's not new. I like that it's uh, old, uh, has a story and uh, to, uh, and using uh, for people. What uh, It's a benefit for people. Of course, when uh, I have a break uh, and uh, I don't see it a uh, week or two a couple of weeks and uh, of course uh, I missed because I I have need to feel like a dirty animal I was gonna ask you if you miss it when it's gone like you long for it you miss it you want to be back with it yes what is it about that ashtray that's different that gets your heart racing than other ashtrays? Uh, uh, I like another ashtrays too. <laughs> <laughs> I like another ashtray, but but I don't like totally new ashtray. I like uh, things with a story with uh feedback or background background with background what it's important for me it excites me is it also exciting to see people using the ashtray for their cigarettes or cigars yes 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 i like and i like uh be dirty, dirty and smelly and like an animal it's true maybe it's uh kinky for other people but uh, i love it the heart wants what the heart wants, Yuri. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And it's my personal life. Yep, it sure is. What kind of response do you get to your attraction to this ashtray from, like, you know, your friends and people who know about it? I think it's strange for many people. Uh, my feeling and my fetishes, they uh, often uh tell me that i'm crazy i'm violent i'm savage but uh they still love me really often they say uh, i'm wild but i'm funny what uh 
no, it's my nature. <laughs> and you deserve to be happy. Yes, uh, yes, it's important to be happy. Well, you can. Um, <laughs> you've mentioned your childhood a few times. So this attraction to objects and their stories goes back to then? Objects was uh, really fantastic and uh, mystical for me with my childhood. I loved uh, fantasy stories in my childhood. And uh, when I was uh, five uh, years old, I started to write uh, such stories. I wrote uh, four books of poems in Russia. And uh, I, I was starting with my childhood. And it was uh, fantasy stories. I have to think that you are misunderstood in a lot of ways. Um, in what ways do people not understand your love and your affection and your attraction? Maybe, but uh, many people of uh, love that I show my sexuality because uh, many people have need with it. You are a very outspoken activist for the LGBTQIA plus community in Kazakhstan. And at a rally, you were beaten up pretty badly. Why is it important to you to stand up for sexual minorities? I live in the really homophobic, transphobic, biphobic country. And it's really dangerous to be gay, lesbian, uh, pansexual, bisexual here. Uh, but for me, the greatest value is uh, human life. And I believe that we should protect LGBT rights, uh, people rights. I supported uh, transgender people on the rally. Uh, what I supported uh, also Victoria Berkhajaeva. Uh, she is a transgender woman. She is in a prison and she was raped uh, several times there. And you'd go to these rallies and you're a very large man with a lot of muscle and you would wear a dress to these rallies. Yeah. It was a democratic rally. Uh, it was democratic people. But when I was at female look at their behavior was not democratic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You dress like a woman and, uh, Things changed for you. Yes, yes. It was a challenge for them and for, uh, for us, for people uh, in this country. What were your injuries? I had uh, concussions, broken nose, uh, broken two teeth. Your eye was swollen shut too. Yes, yes. But I'm good now and uh, I'm proud what I did because uh, I could take attention this problem because uh, a lot of journalists a lot of people in kazakhstan uh, discussed it i am on the lgbtq plus spectrum as well and i think you know it's been a long time that people in our community have been fighting for recognition for equality but then there are people who don't have a letter yet, you know, who aren't LGBTQ. They are somewhere in between and changing and growing and discovering new things they love. And when I think about you showing up for those rallies and I think about you being outspoken about what you love, it makes me think there's so much more to us than just those letters. 
And so fighting for your equality is fighting for everybody's. I believe that we should uh, protect uh, and support all human rights and uh, uh, not only human, nature, nature ecology too, because uh, it's connect. It's connect for our life. What I protect not only LGBT, I protect uh, also uh, ecology, uh, women rights, not only LGBT. What, uh, but LGBT in our country is really not security, and uh, you should be really brave to tell about it, and more brave to go uh, to the square where. Uh, there are really a lot of people, uh, gamophobic people, Tegdel. Well, Yuri Torochko, thank you for talking with me today. Thank you so much, too. After the break. You don't have to have organs to have feelings. I'm Kion Wolf. This is Audacious. Be right back. Now there's three cigarettes in the ashtray. This is Audacious. I'm Kion Wolf. Today, life as an objectum sexual, a person who's attracted to objects. Amanda Liberty of Leeds, England, is no stranger to love. Her first love was with a drum set in her childhood, but I asked her to back me up and talk about what she remembers about her earliest memories of perceiving and developing a relationship with things. It's difficult, really, because it sort of grew from my interest as most children having teddy bears or whatever. Most people are animist when they are small. And animist means to be feeling energies from objects, you know, to feel that they have a life, to feel like they have a personality within them. Kind of, it just kind of grew from that. Whereas I think most people lose that aspect as they grow up. You know, they sort of realize, oh, it's not real, so to speak. But for me, it was always real. Uh, I don't, I don't know how other people feel because, because I'm not them. But it kind of just developed from that childhood instinct into love for objects you know like I always loved them anyway so it just sort of developed into having relationships with them when I got older well I'd like to ask about your first love it was a drum set you were 14 years old now I'm a drummer my drum set is in the basement and it brings me such joy I definitely can understand the attraction to a degree can you describe what that connection was like to this drum set. Will you talk about, is it a physical attraction? Is it an emotional connection? What What's there? Both, you know, a physical and an emotional attraction. Definitely emotional. It was just extreme happiness, you know, just to be there with my drum kit, you know, and I'd play there and feel like that the drums were extensions of me, you know, like my, my drumsticks were part of me as well and then the drum kit as well was part of me as well and I could take out all my frustrations on my drum kit which me too me I'm sure everyone can the crash symbol the ride and the hi-hat are my particular favorites to just smash yeah 
It was always the kick drum for me. Oh, that. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. But so here's the thing. Like, I think, oh, I am with you. Not a hundred percent on this, but there's 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 a there's a further there's a deeper feeling that you felt for this drum kit. That how would you articulate it was different than the way I feel about my drum kit? Well, I suppose because of the animism, you know, feeling energy from it, feeling that I, that my drum kit had a personality, that my drum kit was my friend. You know, to begin with, I think that's what it was. You know, to start with, my drum kit was my friend, and then I just ended up falling in love and. It felt completely natural to me. So I suppose me falling in love with my drum kit is what's different to what you are. Your last name is Liberty. So I got to ask about the Statue of Liberty. You are one of the biggest collectors in the UK, if not in the world, of replica statues of Liberty. You have over 200 in your home. Will you... Bring me back to the first time that you saw the Statue of Liberty with your eyeballs and you said, oh, my God. Yeah, that was exactly what it was. I mean, I fell in love with her over the Internet. You know, it was like pictures and images and through some of my collection that I'd amassed before I went to New York. Uh, I think we'd been together for about a year and a half before I went to New York and then when when I did and got on the boat and went over oh oh that was such a special moment I think a lot of people can relate to that though I think I mean for me I just felt a really personal connection like I was seeing my daughter for the first time in person and she was standing right there in front of me across the water but I was amazed uh, just my jaw went to the floor. <laughs> Will you talk about what you feel back from the Statue of Liberty, what you felt back? What, because I can feel your emotion towards her. That's palpable. But obviously, as somebody who doesn't pick up on what you pick up on, how do you interpret energy from her? I just feel it. You know, it's just something I feel. I feel her emotions I feel that even though you know obviously she doesn't have a brain I've been inside a crown so I know that she doesn't have a brain you know I've been inside her head <laughs> you got inside <laughs> and, her head yeah. yeah yeah exactly but it's not like that it's not physically like that you don't have to have organs to have feelings in my view you know uh, to me you know I mean if you look at the materials that the Statue of Liberty is made of you've got copper You've got iron, you've got sailing steel, and and the pedestal is granite. So you've got you've got all of these things that come from the earth, you know. And a lot of people can relate to the earth and plants and life form and crystals and things like that, which I'll get into later with the with the chandeliers. It's like all that stuff comes out from the earth. And that is what animism is. So it just it uh, so suppose she's an extension of that, and and plus what she means as well. I mean, to me, the Statue of Liberty means freedom. She means justice. She means responsibility as well. You know, but I feel she feels that I am special. I mean, I still have that with her now. You know, I still do love her. I've never fallen out of love with her, and I look forward to the next time I can go. You know, obviously. 
Let's talk about Lumiere, who, of course, is named after the chandelier in Beauty and the Beast and with whom you are in a relationship with right now. Will you tell me about how you met and how that relationship blossomed? Absolutely. I mean, I mean, she was lame, named actually by somebody else. She was named by a friend of mine, uh, Lumiere. She told me means light in French, so that's an easy. That's an easy one. Um, I again met her on the internet. You know, there's a theme here. The yeah, you and the rest of the world, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I got her from Germany. She was actually in Germany on eBay, and I thought, oh, I'm not going to be able to get her. You know, posting her and. The, the amount of money that she was up for on eBay, I thought, no, it's not going to be happening. You know, I'm not going to be getting her. And I waited a couple of weeks. I ended up emailing the guy who is German, but he spoke good English. And I, I managed to get a settlement to get her, to get her. You know, I agreed. You know, he reduced his price for me a little bit. And we... Uh, we packed her up in a box and shipped her over so you could say that she's my mail order bride. <laughs> <laughs> now, wait a minute. What of all the chandeliers in the world, what was it about Lumiere that made you think, oh my gosh, that she's for me? Well, of course, on, on the internet, it was more of a physical attraction than anything else. Just the way that she looks. I mean, she looks amazing. You know, all her little curls and her swells and the angles and just everything about her. She's a perfect form to me. It's like I've never seen another chandelier that looks like her. And being absolutely interested in chandeliers, I mean, I've restored over 150 uh, chandeliers and I've been all over the world basically seeing different chandeliers here, there and everywhere. I've never seen another one that matches her. I've never, I mean, I'd love, I'd love to know if anybody out there has one that's just like my Lumiere. I'd just love to know if she's got a twin somewhere out there because, you know, I've never seen one. I think I've seen a pair that were by the same maker. I mean, I don't know who made her and she can't tell me that information. She, they don't have that kind of communication with me. And the communication is more just, you know, feeling how they are feeling and what they are thinking and things like that. You know, it's not, they can't tell me about the history or where she was before she came to that shop in Germany, you know, the past 100 years of her life. I have no idea where she was, what she was doing or anything. Do you speak to her? Do you have conversations with her either out loud or... I mean, for lack of a better term, telepathically. Like, how do you communicate? I sometimes speak to her in person, but it's never like a conversation. I'll just say, hi, Lumiere, or I love you. You're beautiful and things like that. That's what I say in person. But when when I think of but more of an emotionally side of it, you know, I kind of just feel our energies. You know, it's not a communication through verbal communication it is it's just through feeling basically but that's enough for me I mean a lot of people will turn around and say well you know that's not really 
much, you know, she's not there to give you a hug and things like that, like humans are. But for me, it doesn't matter. To me, it doesn't matter at all. You know, I don't, I look past all of that. I think that's what it is. I look past it all. I don't put walls around myself. You know, I don't uh, deny things that other people might do. I think that's probably why it, that it works for me because I don't deny things. We were talking earlier about how, you know, Lumiere can't necessarily like hug you back and we are not going to talk about any sort of sex stuff, but I am curious to know, like when you touch, what does it feel like to touch her? For me, I feel energy through the touch, you know, I feel like, again, she's an extension to me. I feel like my energy my warmth of my hand flows into her cold metal and then her metal warms up because she's been next to my arm and there is a transference of physical energy but it's also emotional you know it just feels really good to touch her you know I just feel a spark you know I feel like electricity goes up my arm but not not <laughs> as in zapping you know <laughs> oh, that's she's, not off the table she's well she's well wired you know that's <laughs> <laughs> uh no more of an a, an emotional spiritual connection between ourselves earlier you were talking about crystals and I thought that was a really cool point because uh, I mean there are plenty of people who feel energy from crystals you know they they put them in the windowsill on a full moon to recharge them and well these folks you know they probably may at times feel misunderstood but you know they aren't the topic of radio shows like mine right so I'd like to hear what you think about how many people connect with crystals and how they and those feelings compare to the relationship that you have with Lumiere. Well, a lot of people feel energies from crystals. You know, I mean, I was talking to somebody a couple of weeks ago, a chandelier uh, dealer down in London. I was having a conversation with them and he was giving me loads of big rock crystal and things to hold. And I was holding him and I said, I feel great energy from this. And he was saying, I always do. That's why I opened this place. And that's why I do this job because of how I feel about the crystals. You know, it started from that, you know, they come from the earth. You know, if you talk about rock crystal or rock crystal quartz crystal, it comes straight from the earth, you know, literally dig it out and then shape it to be whatever, like a chandelier crystal or whatever. And, you know, the energies that come from that is just really special. You can feel it. You can feel it going up your arms and things. And that's how I feel. With with the mirror as well, you know, with her metal, you know, that again comes from the earth. Yeah, so it just all goes back to and ties to. It's a way of trying to find ways to relate to the rest of the world who doesn't feel exactly like I do with objects, trying to find a way for them to uh, relate in some way, at least where they can feel energy from objects. And crystal is a good one to start with. And then there is, of course, the bonus of Lumiere that she's never going to cheat on you. You know, she's never going to lie. You're never going to get hurt or betrayed by this love. 
some people will think, oh, it's easy to be in love with an object. You don't have all the arguments. You don't have the fights. You don't have to worry about them getting hurt particularly. You know, you don't have to worry about them leaving you. You don't have to worry about this. You don't have to worry about that. It's like, it's just easy, you know, always going to be there, no problem. But it's actually harder to be in love with objects, I think, because then other people don't really understand. You know, it's a battle to get other people just to, open the minds a little bit and just accept it. You know, I'm not, I'm not asking for everyone to understand 100%. You know, I know I am aware it's difficult for people, <laughs> you know, and I understand that and accept that, you know, that because, because it's not a life you need, it's difficult to understand how it works for somebody else. But I'd say this about myself and about anybody else who is different. Again, you know, unless you've been in those situations, unless you know how it feels, then how can you just stand there and say that's wrong or you judge it, you know, it's like, I don't get it. I don't get the closed-mindedness of some people. And I think that's the hardest part of being in love with an object because you, you get, you know, you have to explain yourself a million times over just to, get a little bit of love and acceptance acceptance and respect from people. I think that's what I want above all else is just acceptance and respect as well. You know, like everyone deserves respect. You know, and if you see me and Louie together, you'll see I'm happy. You know, you might not see her happiness, but she is happy. But you see mine and it's like, just be happy for me. <laughs> Makes me wonder... What would the world look like? How would you move throughout this world differently if people got it? If it wasn't something you really had to explain and to get on public radio shows and talk about, what would? How would your life be different? What would it look like? Oh no, there's a question I've never been asked before. <laughs> yes, she's <Yes>. cheering. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, I guess it'd be, it'd be a lot easier because then I wouldn't have to explain myself. I'd just be able to say, I'd just be able to go out there and say, you know, I'm in love with Lumia. You know, she's my chandelier at home. Here's a picture of them. Then other people will go, oh, wow, you know, that's wonderful. I'm so happy for you. You know, you, you know, have you been together long? Yeah, you know, have you been together long and how did you meet and things like that? You know, it'd be just things like that. The questions everybody else gets. Exactly. You know, because we still have all of that. Would you take her out to dinner? Uh, well, it's difficult because, you know, she is, you know, there, there is limits, unfortunately. You know, some chandeliers are okay. I mean, she's quite heavy, you know. Want, don't want to damage her all the time. But, <laughs> Not quite portable. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't want to damage her. I mean, I don't move her from the spot where she hangs. She hangs in my living room in the corner. You know, that's where she hangs. And she doesn't move from there. You know, I go over to her if I want to see her, you know. Or I look at her like I'm doing now and I'm like, yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> oh, I see. You know, I look at her, I look at her I'm like, oh, she's amazing. You know, she's gorgeous, Shindy. 
So yeah, I think I think that's what I'd really like. I'd really like to be able to live in a world like that where you can just, you know, some people can just be happy for me. Well, happy for us, happy for our relationship. You know, happy for us as a person, as a person and as a chandelier, you know. Would you say that being an objectum sexual is to you a sexual orientation? You know, it's not something you chose. It's not something you can or want to change. It's got its own culture. Would you say that is the case for you, that you see it as a, a sexual orientation? Absolutely, 100%. I do believe that I fit on the LGBTQIA plus OS. So, you know, there's a, there's a million of those now and I'll be honest, I don't know what every single one means. I need to research that a bit more, but I, I accept everybody. But I believe that is where I fit on the scale of things. It is a sexual orientation like heterosexual, homosexual, objectionsexual. You know, it's just, it doesn't mean necessarily that you are being sexual. Just like asexual. Exactly. Right? It can, it means that is where you are attracted and then hopefully it'll be someday as boring uh, as everybody else. Hopefully it'll just be accepted like everyone else. Yeah, that's that's what I would like ideally in this world, just to have what other people have in terms of their, their love and their life being accepted by everyone else. You know, I find a lot of people do accept me the way I am though. Yeah, I suppose because I am willing to <clears throat> speak out about it. You know, I'm not quiet. Well, Amanda Liberty, I am truly happy for you. And she's beautiful and you look beautiful together. So thank you. And thank you for talking with me. You're completely welcome. You know, if we don't do this and we're not going to be able to help people to be open-minded. Audacious is produced by me, Jessica Severin Martinez, and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. Subscribe to Audacious and you'll always get to hear the show a day early. Plus, you can listen back to the shows I mentioned earlier, like the one about what it's like to use a therapy baby to cope with depression and anxiety, and how dating a synthetic person can be an act of self-love. You can hear them all at ctpublic.org slash audacious or wherever you get your podcasts. Send me your reactions and show ideas on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Kyone Wolf. And my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.